So we'll be starting in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 27, so turn to that if you would. Seventeen, sir. Genesis seventeen. As always, we begin with prayer. Pray for those that are traveling, for obvious reasons. Pray for those families that are involved with the whole hostage mess in Palestine and with Hamas and all that. Just one big mess. We seem to have forgotten about Ukraine. That continues. It's hard for us. We are so insulated from the world in this country, aren't we? Everything's relatively safe. We know that. And we don't even think about those kinds of things happening. We cannot even imagine what it would be like. So it's hard for us to feel for them. But we should. We should try. So we pray for them today because we are thankful for what we have. Pray with me. Father, in this season of Thanksgiving, we thank you again for this wonderful nation. Flawed as it is, we are safe and secure. Thank you. We thank you, Father, for the hostages that have been released, for the joy that that brings, for the hope that it brings. We pray that you would continue to be with those families who are separated by this mess Work their Father. Work a work of peace. Give people hope and endurance and strength. We pray for peace both in Israel and in Ukraine and in so many other places in the world where death and misery and destruction are everyday occurrences. We pray for them. We recognize, Father, what a wonderful thing we have here in these United States. Thank you. We pray, Father, Work through those who have powers, elected or otherwise. Give them a spirit of peacemaking, a willingness to lay down their arms, the ability to compromise and negotiate and bring about ceasefire. We pray this morning, Father, for our soldiers and their families, first responders, all those that serve others. Guide and direct them. We pray that you would encourage and strengthen them Enable them to do their jobs. We pray for their protection, for the comfort of their families. And we pray, Father, for those with power. Give them peaceful hearts. We pray for our legislators that they would work together for the common good, a spirit of compromise on both sides, help them to realize the lessons we teach our children, that no one gets everything they want all the time. Father, we pray today and as we worship that you would be with us. We ask for mercy and forgiveness for our sin. We ask for your spirit to work in our lives in this Christmas season. Give us generous spirits. We pray, Father, for those that struggle. Be with them. Guide them in their families, in jobs. With those who struggle with health concerns, be with them too. Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us and for reaching down to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So we gather today, in spite of the weather, on Sundays we go to church, don't we? Most of us, bad weather, slick roads notwithstanding. I got up, didn't even think about looking outside. I just knew I was going to go to church because it's Sunday. It's what I do. Just like some of you, you just go. Why would we do that? What is there about church? Because we can stay home and be Christian. We can stay home and watch Joel Osteen or whomever you want on TV. And we can hear a better sermon than this one probably and better music maybe. I doubt that. But you can hear all those things of Christian form on TV. Why would we get out? What did God intend when he said, get up and get together? Well, today we're going to talk about that just a little bit. Maybe the video, We Are the Church, can give you some ideas. Debbie? One morning I walked into a church, but it wasn't on a Sunday. I looked around and I saw the empty seats, the sun glistening through the dust in the air. At first I was distraught at the sight of the empty chairs, but then I was filled with joy. I realized that the people who were once in those chairs were now outside of the building, working at their jobs, serving in their communities, laughing with their co-workers and growing with their families. They had the opportunity to be the church, not just sit in it. When will we be like them? When will we see the opportunity given to us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, bringing hope into the world. Stained glass can't pray for the sick. These walls can't preach the gospel, but you can. The building you're sitting in is just a building. But if you trust in Jesus, then you are the church. My daughter had to drive to Illinois over the weekend so she can worship with her husband's family. They go to that church once or twice a year. It's in Illinois, it doesn't matter where, Salem, I think. And she doesn't know these people at all, but she is accepted. She claims Jesus, just like them. She's one of them. Now, she's not by family and all those things. You know, there are differences there, and they don't know her. But, but she claims Jesus, so she's family. This faith unites us in a way that other things cannot. It's more than just a common interest. It's, it's something deep within. It's that faith relationship we have with Jesus, isn't it? It's not because we're good people or because we're better people than anybody else. It's because we follow Jesus. It's almost like a contract. You sign the dotted line, you do this, I'll do that. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's covenant. You know what I mean by contracts. With a contract, 
you say X, you sign the dotted line. The person who writes the contract says X. They sign the line. It's binding legally. Sometimes it's emotional, but not usually, but it's, it's a thing. If you make your payments, you keep the house. If you make your payments, you keep the car, so on and so forth. If you continue to make the payments, the bank will cover you and those kinds of things. Those are contracts. A covenant is something different. In the Old Testament, God reached down and he used something that other people had already developed. And he's began to offer covenant relationships to his people from the early days of humanity. So a little bit of Old Testament history. You probably know this. Some of you teacher types know the word suzerain. Remember those terms? A suzerain was a powerful leader in his area. He would approach weaker countries, weaker peoples, vassals. And that was a thing. And everybody knew what a suzerain was. Suzerainty was a, a covenant relationship. Not a contract, but a covenant. And here was the deal. The powerful leader, the suzerain, initiated it. A weaker country never approached a powerful country and said, listen, we need to make a deal. They wouldn't do that. They didn't have the right. The powerful leader would have an emissary go to the smaller country and then make an arrangement. Papers were signed, the beginning of contracts, but it was something more profound than contracts. And the deal was, if you held up your part of the contract, the vassal, that the suzerain, the powerful person, would protect you. And there would be cost, of course. You would have to give your pretty women so that the suzerain's fellows could have wives. And you would have to give your young men for soldiers to protect the suzerain's interests and things such as this. And this was the way the world was. Thousands of years before Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, before anybody else along that you and I would be familiar with, there was this system. It, it's just something that evolved. So when God began to work with people, he used the form that they understood. So instead of inventing everything new, God used a form of contract and enhanced it. So God came and did something with his people. Follow along with me if you would. Genesis 17. I'll read the first eight verses. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I'll make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession." and I will be their God. So that's what God did with Abram, who became Abraham. And yes, this is the beginning of the Hebrew people, a people of God. And so this was one of those things where the powerful leader, God, the suzerain, approached the vassal, the weaker people. In fact, is, Abram wasn't even a people. He just had his relatives. No nation, no boundaries, anything like that. 
And he said, all right, Abram, I will bless you. And I will make you a nation. And your seed will be millions of them. And it was one of those things. Now, it was under the understanding that you will follow me. I'll be your God and you will be my people. So there was that understanding that it was a contract, but it was more important. It enveloped lives and finances and sons and daughters and all those kinds of things. And God did this to begin with. God has always done this with people. He comes to people and he offers this understanding, this covenant. Follow me and I'll be your people. Obey me and I will bless you. So on screen what I want to do is talk just a little bit about why this covenant is so unique and how it works out. It's always offered in the context of man's sin. So this is where it differentiates from that suzerainty thing. And, and the suzerainty, that's how you say it, but it sounds wrong. Some people say suzerainty, and that sounds wrong too. You can fuss with the scholars about that. But anyway, this is how this is different. It's always offered in the context of man's sin. Now you know the sin. Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael was the sin. Abram tried to fix things. His wife tried to fix things and it turned into a big mess. And so into that mess, God came and offered a covenant through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the people of Israel. This is the way God works. In fact, is, uh, you know, as we talk about this, some of you, uh, I know some of you carry study Bibles. There are all sorts of different kinds of study Bibles. They're all good. But some of them will say that there's only one covenant in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant that we just read. Other scholars will fuss and say, oh no, there's at least six or seven covenants. And so scholars will fuss about that. So I'm just going to stick with that idea that there's one primary covenant in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant. But in all the other times when the scholars say, well, there's another covenant, covenant, and they did use that language several times, it was always in the context of man's sin. So in the book of Judges, when man sinned, the people went away from God, there was punishment, and then they reestablished the covenant, and so on and so forth. And so throughout the Old Testament, it was always in the point of man's sin when God would come. So God would wait, he would give us a chance, and after we got ourselves in a big mess, then he would say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Kind of like the way my dad was with me when I started working on cars and motorcycles. Because I, I would say, dad, I can handle this. I got this. And he knew I couldn't, but he said, fine. And then in about an hour, he would know I'd broken something because he could hear me screaming or throwing something or hitting with the, something with a tool. And he would get him, what'd you do? And he would give me a stern lecture, a dirty look, and push me out of the way and then fix my problem. And this is the way God was with us and is with us. He allows us to do what we want. And then when we mess up, then he speaks in that voice, let me help. And that's that covenant approach. This covenant was initiated by God. Abram wasn't trying to fix things for the nation. I mean, he wasn't doing it from a godly perspective. He just did what his wife said. Think about that story. It just reeks of stupid, doesn't it? I mean, really, a wife who couldn't have a baby, fixing up another woman to sleep with her husband. Like, that's going to turn out good. I mean, really? That's what people do. We do stupid things, thinking we're smart. They did a stupid thing. And fast forward several thousand years, when we watch the news, 
in the story of the Israelites and the Arabs fighting, that's where this came from. This is what people do when they do it without God. So God said, okay, I'm going to fix your mess. This is how we're going to do it. And the promise of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at God's bidding. And it's made with the shedding of blood. It doesn't show it here. But one of the things that we understand from the Old Testament teachings is, the fact is, if you would, turn to Jeremiah 34. And I know it's messing you up. Jeremiah 34. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Chapter 34, and they're going to re I'm going to read something really bizarre. Jeremiah 34, I'm going to read verse 18. God speaking through Jeremiah. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts. What in the world is that? In the ancient cultures, in order to show just how important a covenant was and how life and death what they are doing was, they would take an animal and they would cut it in half, really, and then put it on the ground in front. Of, and this was a big ceremony. Everybody would watch and they would sprinkle the blood everywhere and they would cut a covenant. And that's what they called it. And they would walk between the parts of the animal. Now, we would never do that today, of course. We're too, too cool for that kind of thing. But this was standard stuff. So when Abram did it, when Jeremiah wrote about it, everybody understood this was life and death. This was the difference between surviving and dying. This is what God was doing. It was big stuff. And it impressed upon the people just how serious a nature this covenant was. So they cut a covenant. So it's offered in the context of man's sin. It's initiated by God and it's completed with the shedding of blood. Do you see a sense of New Testament teachings there? Initiated by God. It was God's idea to come in the flesh. Offered in the context of sin. Us and our sin. And completed with the shedding of blood. You're beginning to see how a covenant in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of the way Jesus Messiah would work. So we need to understand that because this is, this is life and death. In ancient cultures, when the powerful country came to you and said, we're going to have a, a bargain here, a covenant, and we're going to cut this calf and establish this covenant, it was literally life and death. Because if you didn't want to go into an arrangement with the powerful country, he would simply kill you. I mean, it was easy. He just killed you. He would kill all your young men. He would kill you if you were in charge. Then he would take your women and children. Life and death. So covenants made a difference. They made, they made life possible. So God used a form of understanding and relationship that everybody understood to impress upon them just how important it was that they work with him. It was literally life and death. Now, unfortunately, the Old Testament covenant didn't work very well, did it? Why? Because we're people. And we still do incredibly sinful things. We're all the same. I wish I could say that Americans were better than these people, but I'm not convinced, are you? We have our own things to hide, our own baggage, our own shame. 
so in that context, God does something. So on screen is this idea that God has offered us a new covenant and a better covenant through his son Jesus. And so interestingly enough, you know, we do communion once a month and, and, and reenactment of the Lord's Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, this is what Jesus said before he was crucified. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Remember that cutting of the covenant? This is what Jesus was referring to. They understood immediately what he meant. And they knew that he was going to die. And they didn't understand everything. But when he said that, and he said, let this wine symbolize my blood, and this bread symbolize my blood, they knew he was going to die. They could read the situation then. And they were reminded of the story of Abram. And of Jeremiah's words, cutting a covenant. And how that would change everything. Now, they didn't understand everything, of course. They didn't have the New Testament to explain it to them. But they began to get a sense that something big is going to happen here. Now, if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 8 in your New Testament. Hebrews chapter 8. So when we read the New Testament... It explains to us Christ in the covenant. Follow along, Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 13. For finding fault with him, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the last to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant... He has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So that verse 13 is key, isn't it? The old covenant, that of Abraham, is beginning to disappear. Why? Because of Jesus. Now, just so you'll know, the section that we read is almost a word-for-word -word quotation out of Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet. So in order to explain Jesus and his role in our salvation and God's covenant relationship with us, it's significant that we understand that Barnabas, I think, quoted Jeremiah the prophet. Because that was the best way for us to understand. So immediately, the people were transported back to remember what the prophet said. And they remembered these words. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is one of the most profound passages in the Old Testament. Because it explains this covenant that God had with his people. And they understood what Barnabas was doing. When they read that passage out of Hebrews, they thought, oh my gosh, we got it. Christ at work in the Old Testament. As you can see, this is an explanation of the new covenant as first expressed in Jeremiah 31. So, we're unreliable as a people. This is why when we have treaties, we know that eventually somebody's going to break the treaty. Eventually, Hamas and Israel will have a treaty, maybe. 
we hope. And we know eventually someone's going to ignore the treaty. There'll be exceptions or certain circumstances. And, and even though there's a ceasefire, somebody's going to die. We know that, don't we? Not because we're prophets, but because that's people. We know that even if there's peace between us and China now, that eventually things are going to happen because that's people. We know that in our family situation, if everybody's happy today, it may not be the case next week because people are people. And we resist and we chafe and, and we sin and we're selfish sometimes. And sometimes we just talk too much or not enough. And so we fail. <coughs> the problem with the old covenant wasn't on God's part. The problem with the covenant was man's part. They couldn't keep the law. They just wouldn't. So God fixed it. This is how you fix it when you're Almighty God. You establish a covenant and it is done by your work alone. So when we talk about Jesus' blood on the cross, he covers everything, doesn't he? The blood of Jesus covers sin. All sin. Forever. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man should boast. You know that. That means the covenant isn't determined by you. You receive the gift and it's sealed. For those who follow Jesus, imperfect or not, salvation is secure. No one shall snatch them out of my hand, Jesus said. So even though you're a sinner and you still sin and you resist God and you chafe against his leadership, your salvation is secure because it's not determined by your performance, by your goodness, by whether you go to church when the roads are slick or not. You know, it's not that big a deal to God. He wants you to be obedient, of course. He wants you to lead your life in a way that others can see Christ in us. He wants us to tell others about Jesus. That's not part of the covenant. That's just how he wants us to live. The covenant is secure through Jesus and only Jesus. This is how really creepy people can be saved. And you know that? That really creepy people can be saved. People that don't deserve it, they can be saved. And aren't you glad? You may not deserve it some days. That's right. Under the Old Covenant, there was always the threat of punishment. The book of Judges is the prime example. Over and over and over. They would become strong, they would walk away from God, and they would be destroyed. And then another leader would arise, the people would repent, they would become strong, then they would sin, then God would punish them, they would be destroyed, and they had to start all over. That's the Old Testament story. Some people think that's the way it works today. It is not. Because the New Covenant, the one that the book of Hebrews says is gone or is now in place. The new covenant is different because the powerful one took care of everything. Received Jesus and that's it. Even in our sin, God covers us. So on screen is this final idea. We are the people of the covenant that we have with God through Jesus. It was foretold in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. 
through Jesus and his work on the cross. So you are the result of the new covenant. Even in your sin. We follow Jesus, we confess our sin, we do all the things that we can, and then somewhere along the way we will stumble. And we don't have to worry about, am I still saved? Of course you are. Because you're saved not by your performance, but by God's grace expressed through Jesus. The covenant is secure. What about, what about, what about? Irrelevant. Don't worry about it. Remember Jesus one time told his people, quit worrying about everybody else. Follow me. And that's our job. Follow Jesus. It's not up to you to determine who is and isn't saved. Follow Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Live by the covenant. You're safe. And in that, we are thankful. Nate's going to come and lead us in a closing hymn of invitation. Let me encourage you, follow Jesus. Live by a covenant that always works and gives life. Nate? sing praises to you and now the most important part is we need to leave this place and take you with us in Jesus name we pray amen <laughs>